Father, thanks so much for this time, and thanks for these students. Lord, I pray that right now, um, that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts will be holy and pleasing to you, Lord Jesus. And we pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen. Um, So like I said, I'm from a small town in Alabama called Tuscumbia. It's the birthplace of Helen Keller. We're really proud of that. Um, And there's just not a lot in Tuscumbia. I had a graduating class of nine people in my high school. And uh, so when you're in a tiny school like that, like everyone kind of has to do everything. So like I was a three-sport star, right? But nine people, not that big. I'm not that athletic. Um, We also had school plays. And so everyone had to be in the school play. And the school play was like usually pretty crappy because a lot of us weren't very good actors. But we just did it. And the community would kind of turn out and come see the school play. Well, my senior year, we did Cinderella. It's like the most basic choice ever, but whatever. Uh, so we're doing Cinderella, and um, I, the, it was like pretty crowded. We had a good turnout, and the play, shockingly, was going really well. Like Our plays never went well, and there had been no hitches at all until the final scene like, all of y'all have seen this scene before. It's a scene where the prince is going around from door to door, and he's got the glass slipper, and he's going to go to Cinderella's house and put the slipper on her foot. So Cinderella's on the stage, and the, you know, I believe stepsisters and the evil stepmother are out there, and they're like, I think that he's about to come. Oh, look, the prince is coming through that door right there. And the prince didn't come out. He wasn't there. And so now the girls are on stage, and they're just totally having to ad-lib, and they're like, um, oh, no, no, I think he went next door. And they're just, like, kind of freestyling at this point, and the crowd can kind of tell, like, this is not how this is supposed to be going. This is getting very uncomfortable. And they're just, like, Cinderella is embarrassed, and it totally, like, it ruined the play. Everybody said that it ruined the play. Everybody told me that it ruined the play because I was Prince Charming. And I didn't show up. And I really didn't have a very good excuse. I was just in the back, like, talking to my friend, and we missed our cue. And then we realized, like, ten minutes into their freestyle that they're doing, and, like, run out onto the stage, and there's just, like, a pissed-off Cinderella waiting for us who's totally angry and left out there on the stage alone and ashamed. And here's the thing. I think the woman in this story could very much relate to the, to the Cinderella from that play. Alone, ashamed. And if there's one thing that's true about the human experience is that all of us have felt that at some point. Alone, or angry, maybe angry at God for what he's doing, for things that you may understand, like why things are happening in the world the way they are. But here's the thing. If that is you... If you find yourself at times feeling angry or alone or afraid or ashamed, what I think this story tells us is that you are actually a perfect candidate for God's work. You're a perfect candidate for God to be at work in your life, if that's you. So I want to look at three things tonight. First off, who is this woman? Who is she? Second point, Jesus' response to her, and third, so what? Okay? Who is she? Jesus' response, and so what? So first off, who is this woman? Well, we know from the text that she's a Samaritan, and 
to give you like, let me geek out on like biblical history for a second here. In, in 2 Kings 17, verses 24, verse 24, we know that there were these five surrounding nations that invaded the Jews. And part, a sect of the Jews was Samaria. Samaria, are, they're from like the original tribes of Israel. And there was a law, though, that they weren't supposed to intermarry with the surrounding nations. And the reason that God did that is he knew that when they, start, when they did intermarry with the surrounding nations, that they would begin worshiping those nations' gods. And the Samaritans did it anyway. They disobeyed. And so because of that, you can even see that some in this text where she has this conversation with Jesus about, like, where's the right place to worship? Like, their theology is askew. It's not right. Like, the Jews will look at the Samaritans with disdain. Like, there, there, are, there is racial tension happening in this story. There, there is a lot of history of brokenness in the story between these two people groups. And so it is surprising, to say the least, that this Jewish rabbi man just walks up to a Samaritan. Not only, like, like, the woman is surprised. Did you see it? Look at verse 9. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like, she's like, why are you coming to me? But not only that, not only is she, not only the Samaritans look down upon for the Jews, this woman is an outcast to her own people. We get that from verse 6. Verse 6, we see that she is getting water during the sixth hour of the day. When you hear that, you might think, okay, six in the morning, that's not how, that's not how they measured time then. They measured time by when the sun rose. So the sixth hour of the day would be like high noon. Now, imagine that you are living in first century Palestine in like an arid, hot climate. When would you go to get water from the well? You would go in the morning. You would go in the morning and it would be a communal activity for the women of the village. The women of the village of Sychar would go together, they'd get their gathering pails, they'd gather up the water for the day that they needed, and they'd take it back home. But this woman isn't with that crew. She's there in the heat of the day at high noon, and she's all alone. And she's alone because she's an outcast to her own people. Why is she an outcast to her own people? Did you catch it? we, it? We get a hint of it in this dialogue that she has with Jesus. She's had five husbands. She has broken relationship after broken relationship after broken, I'm not going to do them all, after broken relationship. She has all of this messed up history in her life and everyone in that village would know, oh, there she goes. Mm-mm-mm. Five husbands. And the person she's with now isn't even her husband. Can you believe that? Like, that, she's that person. She's an outcast to her own people. And y'all, this is why this story gives me so much hope. Because what the Bible suggests is that all of us are outcasts to God. That I am, that you are. Let me read from Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Listen to how like comprehensive Paul's being here. 
as it is written, none is righteous. No one's right with God. And he doubles down. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Did you hear what Paul just said about, about us? He's writing to Christians in Rome. He's writing to Christians. Apart from Christ, we're worthless. We're worthless. We, we didn't seek after him. We're outcasts to God. No one, we're outcasts to God because nobody seeks for God. But do we not seek after other things? We're all seeking after something. What Scripture says is none of us seek after the Lord. So what kind of things do we seek after? If you're like me, you you seek after things that are created instead of the Creator. Or maybe you seek after your status. Or maybe you seek after academic success, or athletic success, or social success. We all seek after these things. And what the Bible calls taking something that's good. Now look, all those things I just said, success, status, doing well in school, money, all of those things, the Bible never says those are bad things. Like people sometimes might read the Bible and say, well, the Bible says like money's the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. See, what we do is we take good things that God has made and we make them into ultimate things. We take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing in our life and what that is is idolatry, which is sin. And here's what, here's what idolatry does. What idolatry does is it leaves you hurt and alone. That's what we see with this woman. This woman, now look, she has, she has her water jar because she's there and she's thirsty, but she also has like a metaphorical water jar, if you will. Like the thing that she is looking to, to pour water in and, and hold and contain and drink from so that she can be satisfied, and she's not satisfied. That's why Jesus was like, anyone who would believe in me, I'll give them water and they'll never be thirsty again. And she's like, where can I get that? That's what she wants. She wants to be satisfied eternally. And her water jar is all these husbands that she's been having. Like relationship after relationship. Maybe it, this is going to be the one that's going to make things right. And she's, just, she's finding bad Prince Charmings, kind of like I was, that poor Cinderella, right? That's what she finds. And what our, what our idols do, y'all, is they leave us hurt and alone. So... My, um, I have two older siblings. My sister um, is like six years older than me. My brother is eight years older than me. My brother is my hero. Like he is, he's just the coolest guy. And he was always my hero because he was eight years older than me. You know, he, when he was like a teenager, I was like a little squirt eight-year-old. Um, and I remember going to uh, Colorado, and my dad's name, y'all aren't going to believe this, my dad's name is Rusty Trap. Things are rusty. So anyway, if you're if you're on a road trip with Rusty Trap and you're um, driving down the road and you pass like the the exit sign that has all the different restaurants on it, like where you could go, and Cracker Barrel is on the sign, the car is going to like violently veer over to the side so that we're all going to go eat at Cracker Barrel. So when we were all okay with that, not because the food at Cracker Barrel is any good, but we wanted to go because of the the toys. Thank you, Durbin. Durbin gets it. 
We, you want to go if you're a kid because of the toys, right? And so we like scarf our food down as fast as we can, and then we run to the gift shop in Cracker Barrel, and we all find things. We're begging our parents to get it. My brother finds this like, you know those like jawbreakers, like the big white ones that have like speckles on them? He finds like this big jawbreaker, and he's like, hey, can I have this jawbreaker? And my dad's like, man, I'm not going to get you that jawbreaker. You're going to try to stick that thing in your mouth. He's like, I'm not going to stick it in my mouth. I'm not going to do that. He's like, all right, I'll buy it for you, but don't try to stick that thing in your mouth. He's like, okay, fine. God. <laughs> I'll never forget this. We're in like the rental van. We're driving after Cracker Barrel. My sister and I are playing Battleship. And my brother's like sprawled, like cool 16-year-old, like sprawled out in the back of the van, you know. And we're in the, in the middle seat and like, A2, miss, B, B7, hit, A3, miss. And then we hear this, like from the back seat. What was that? A4, miss, we hit something in the car. Like, what is it? We turn around, and my brother has taken that jawbreaker, and he, it's stuck in his mouth. He had opened his mouth up wide enough to, like, get it into his mouth, but now his, like, jaws had sunk in around it, and he couldn't open his jaws up wide enough again to get it out, and so he's just stuck back there, and there's this white paste, like, oozing down the side of his mouth, and he's, like, slurping up desperately, like... My dad's like, I told you I was not to put that thing in your mouth. And we pull over to the side of the road. I go to, into a gas station. My brother, my cool 16-year-old brother, walks into the gas station like, <laughs> like with this jawbreaker jammed into his mouth. They have to go into the bathroom, like run water over it so that it would dissolve and he could finally like get it out of his mouth. And like I remember laying next to him on the bed that night in the hotel room we were in, and he was just like, But y'all, that's what our idols do to us. As we look at something that looks so good and delicious and satisfying, and what it ends up doing is leaving you really empty and hurt. Because that thing just can't satisfy you. It's not enough. You're made for something more than that. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. See, you were made for something greater. And so, here's the beautiful thing, though. Jesus knows this about her. Second point, I want you to see how he responds to her. What Jesus does is he meets her in the place where she's most alone in her life. Jesus doesn't cross his arms. This is God incarnate, the Bible claims. This is God made man, the Bible claims. He doesn't cross his arms and say, I can't believe you guys have husband. I gotta talk to her. He walks up to her. And he does it. He does it in the place where she's most alone. And it's unexpected. Like, it's surprising that he would pursue her. The disciples, like, walk, they, like, roll back up on him in verse 27. Like, it's just been Jesus and this woman. They, it says, verse 27, the disciples marveled that he was talking with the woman. They're like, why is he with her? It's unexpected. They're surprised. But here's the good news of the gospel. Like, Romans 3.10 says that no one seeks for God, right? And all of it becomes worthless. No one seeks for God. The good news of what the Bible is saying 
is that God seeks after sinners. While sinners may not seek after him, he is the God who pursues sinners because he loves them, because he's gracious. So, what Jesus does is he meets her in the place where she's most alone, at the well. This is just not how our world works. Unmerited love and favor like this. When I, when I took Chrissy home to meet um, everyone, like that was an event. Bring, like bringing your girlfriend, your college girlfriend home like to your small podunk town that you grew up in. And so my mom took her to like the ladies' boutique, you know, downtown, in downtown Tuscumbia, so that she could meet all the ladies at the boutique. And so she, <laughs> they go, and you know, she's just like talking to everyone, like completely overwhelmed with all the things, you know, okay. They're walking out the door, and the lady who owns the store there, she kind of pokes her head out from behind, like, a thing of clothes, and she's like, well, Chrissy, we sure are glad you're cute, because Lord knows if you weren't, we'd take you down to the river and drown you. Right? How insane is that? <laughs> she's like, okay, thanks, bye. Like, but think what's behind that. About what... Chrissy's worth was. But what makes you valuable? How you look, who you are, who your parents are, who you, well, all that. That's, how, that. that's how the world is, and that's how the world judges people. And what God does is the opposite. He comes up to someone who is broken and alone. Look, every day she goes to that well, and she doesn't get to go with the crowd of people who are going. Every day she goes, and that's the place where she remembers that she's all by herself in this world. And that's the place where Jesus meets her. So I want you to think about this. Where's the place that you'd be most ashamed for God to see about you? The place in your life. Jesus will meet you there. That is where Jesus will meet you. And he doesn't do it with his arms crossed and his foot tapping and a disappointed look on his face. He pursues broken sinners. Okay, last point. So what? So what? Like, it's tempting to look at this, like the, the like fun preacher move at the end of this sermon would be to do this. Verse 28 says she left her water jar behind. So, like, what's the water jar in your life? Like, what's the idol in your life that you're trying to get satisfaction from? Leave it and be better. Let's pray. That's not the message. That's not. Look, this is the message. This woman, this woman had been with five, with, with five men, right? Now, there's, I'm not, like, super into, like, numerology and the Bible and, like, hidden secrets, like, you're not going to get that if you come here a lot. But there is something important. In, like, if, if you read in the Bible, the number seven comes up, especially in the book of John, because seven was the number that the Jews viewed as like perfection. That's how many days God took to create the world. Seven is a number of wholeness and perfection. Now I want you to think about this. Here is this woman. She's been with five husbands. And the man that she's with now is not her husband. 
And it's almost like the author, John, is, is begging the question, is there going to be a seventh man in her life? And up walks Jesus. He is, he's the, the perfect thing that she's been looking for and hungering for and thirsting for. It's him. He walks up to her. And this is what's so beautiful. There's another person in the book of John, in John 3, Nicodemus. He's the person that you would expect for Jesus to approach. If I put Nicodemus' resume over here and the Samaritan woman's resume over here, this is what it would look like. They're complete opposites. Nicodemus is a man. She's a woman. That alone, in that time, you would expect for Jesus to approach Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, meaning that he's like, he's a baller in the religious world. Like, he, he has the Torah memorized, probably. The first five books of the Bible. Memorized. She doesn't know a lick of theology. She doesn't know, she doesn't know anything. Nicodemus is a high-class dude. She is an outcast. Nicodemus, even, even like the way, like Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, Jesus approaches this woman in the middle of the day. This is like all these like literary things that the author is doing. And here's the thing that I want you to see. Do you know the first person in the book of John is that Jesus says, I'm the Messiah too. It's this woman. Not the powerful dude with the status that you would imagine, like we're going to start this new religion, it's going to be called Christianity, so I need to reach all the, the big, important, powerful people first. He goes up to this woman in this podunk town who's an outcast, and he tells her, I'm the Messiah. He's the seventh man. He's the one that she's been thirsting for all her life. So what do you do? The answer is not leave your water jar behind and be better. The answer is look to the one who's worth leaving your water jar behind for. Last year I was walking around the union. I'll close with this. I was walking around the union and... Um, these two girls walked past me, and I was just like, you know how if you're walking, you just kind of like catch like snippets of conversation as like people are walking by you out there? So these two girls are walking by, and then one of them says this, aren't we all low-key still a little in love with our ex? <laughs> so great. Aren't we all low-key still a little in love with our ex? Girl number two, oh, me for sure. <laughs> Do you know what? That's actually a very theological statement. It is. Thomas Chalmers wrote an essay about this in the 19th century called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You should read it. It's amazing. But what that means, the expulsive power of a new affection is this. You can't get over an old love until you find a better one. You can't leave your water jar behind and just try to be better. That never works. The only reason you're going to do that, the only thing that's going to begin to to change you is to see that, that Jesus actually loves you as you are. And you can come to him as you are. And he'll meet you where you're most ashamed. And because he loves you, he will begin to change you. He will. And so you can leave your water jar behind. And so, what I would encourage you to, to do is to consider this. Like I know, I know that there's people here who are trying to figure out what they believe. And that's awesome. And I hope you'll come back or find another campus ministry and explore that. But what the Bible says is that a Christian is not someone who's really good. A Christian is someone for whom God was really good. That's a Christian. Because God is gracious.
you pursue sinners. Let me pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance to be together, to be with these students. Lord, I pray for, uh, I pray for the student who walks out of here and never comes back, that you would be with them the remainder of their time at Texas, that you would bless them and care for them. I pray for the student who leaves and finds another ministry, and I pray that that ministry would serve them well. Lord, we pray for ministries that are, st- that are getting started up all over campus again. We pray for Young Life, for Crew, for Stumo, for Every Nation, for Bridges International. Pray for the churches here, Lord, for Grace and Peace, for Austin Stone, for All Saints and Redeemer, for Providence Church. Lord, we pray for all of these places that are ministering the good news of Jesus, and we pray that these students would find a place to do that. And I do pray, Lord, that you would Help RUF to serve students well, to love people well, and to show them the good news of your grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.